before I left, we were talking about Ezekiel 47.12, as in uh, the whole thing about a river where it flows from the sanctuary and uh, it flows uninterrupted. Wherever it goes, it gives life. One of the things that's required if the water from the sanctuary is to flow through you is that you or your life be coated inside and outside with purity. Purity must coat you inside and out because we talked about how the water that flows from the sanctuary is crystal pure. And so for it to affect lives, it must flow through lives that are coated with purity. And so I want to talk about that today. And remember guys, the purity of heart is a work in progress. The purity of heart is a work in progress. And both God and you share a responsibility. Both God and I share a responsibility in having pure hearts. In the sense that he has made me pure and placed his spirit in me. God has taken care of one part of the responsibility where he has made me pure and placed his pure spirit in me. That's not all he has to do, but that's one major obstacle that he took care of. Now, as it says in James chapter 4 verse 8, I have to draw near to him and as I do, he will draw near to me. And in the process, I'll be able to work out the purity of heart because it's a work that is progressive and it'll continue till the day I leave this earth. While there may be many reasons why I'm called to purity, as in the Father is holy, so I'm called to be holy. The one that I really want us to focus on and perhaps look at it again next week is blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Guys, if we can see God, all our problems are solved. And what do I mean by seeing God? As in seeing his ways, seeing how his mind works, seeing him even before he emerges. If I am able to see God, see the way he works, then life gets sorted out. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. It's in, it's in Matthew 5. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And when I talk about purity, guys, when we talk about purity over, the, over the, maybe a couple of weeks, we are not talking about purity as in freedom from sexual immorality. That's just a part of it. Because nowadays in the world, whenever we talk about purity, we're always thinking of, oh, purity means I should be sexually pure. That's a part of it. What about purity in speech? What about purity in my thinking? What about purity in my relationships? where there's a degree of honesty? What about purity in my generosity? What about purity in my affections, in my intent? What about purity in what I grieve over? What about purity in what I rejoice over? Suddenly you find that purity is not limited to sexual morality, but it goes way beyond that. So when we think of the word purity, don't limit it to sexual purity. David put it this way in Psalm 51 verse 6. He said, Oh God, you desire truth in the inward parts. It's, it, it's a degree of purity and honesty, a combination of honesty and holiness. Not just holiness, there's, a, there's an honesty in it. And David said, you want it from my inward parts. You want truth in my inward parts. That's what he said to God. 
And why are we pursuing these guys? While there are many reasons, our emphasis is blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You, if you and I are able to see God, even slightly better, six months from now, we got a huge part of our life sorted out. I mean, it's like increasing what Betty said a million times. She said, I don't know, I really have no testimony to share except that God, is, God has become present in my life. Now, increase that a million times where because of the purity, because of the honesty and the desire to have a heart that yearns for a God-likeness or a godliness, God becomes more and more evident. We begin to see him. We begin to see how his mind works. The Bible says to the pure, all things are pure. One of the things God is trying to convey there is Jacob, when you begin to yearn after that, you, you easily see me. You easily see me. It's like having night vision goggles. We are able to identify things of God easily. Any questions before we go on? Yeah. And the more we read the Bible, True. Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. I'm talking about seeing how his mind works, seeing his ways, seeing him even before he emerges. As in, we don't need confirmations. We don't need a verse. We don't need a prophetic word. We just know because we've gotten so accustomed to... Uh, attuning our hearts to him. It's like a couple who've been together for so long that they know without knowing. They know without knowing. But that doesn't come necessarily through prayer or even through reading the word. It has to go way beyond that. When it gets to a point where your heart is becoming so much, or uh, your heart is yearning to become so much like Jesus's, that you begin to see God. I could, I mean, physical examples are so limited, guys, so limited. It's like, I never noticed a Hyundai Tucson till I bought one. And then everywhere I go, I see Hyundai Tucsons. I never noticed a Kia till I bought a Kia 16 years ago. I've started noticing Land Rovers because I want to buy one. It's where your heart begins to resonate with whatever you have now a desire for. That's what I mean by blessed are the pure for they shall see God. And where did Jesus borrow this from? I mean, once you see God, everything is simplified. Once you see God, everything is simplified. Once you see God, everything is simplified. Guys, there are very few things that I do during times of worship that are Jacob-led. Most of them are spirit-led. If they don't have the quality of God, it is only because of my inadequacy, not because I don't know what God wants. So for instance, today, in the middle of worship, how is it that I pick up her singing? I'm not listening to her sing. I never listen to her sing. I'm not interested in listening to her sing. 
now that we know how disinterested I am, how come God picks her out to sing when she's not feeling well? Because that's what he wants to do. You begin to see things of God as you begin to resonate with his heart. And that was just because my heart was worshipful with God. What if my heart begins to yearn for a degree of purity that I've never had in the last 28 years as a Christian? What will life be like if I suddenly elevate myself to that platform of purity? Not, I'm not talking about sexual morality. I'm talking about purity in every which way. Affection, speech, relationship, thoughts, intents, motives, generosity in everything. A new level of purity. A new level of honesty. Ah, oh, it'll be so brilliant, man. Life gets simplified because you see God. And don't be surprised if you actually see God. As in, not in his brilliance because you'll die but actually see God as in God begins to visit or sometimes speaks to you audibly. Don't be surprised by that either. Don't be surprised to see heaven open. Really. Happened to Isaiah. Where did Jesus borrow this whole thing of blessed are the pure for they shall see God? He goes, uh, amazing, eh? even though Jesus was fully God, even he would to go to scripture to take out scripture and then interpret it differently but he would go to scripture so he's borrowing this whole idea of blessed are the pure for they shall see God from Matthew 24 verses 3 to 6 uh, or Matthew 24 1 to 3 where it says who shall ascend on the holy hill and what is the holy hill? the holy hill is Zion, Zion is the resting place of God who shall ascend the holy hill and it says they who have clean hands a clean heart and a mouth that does not swear deceitfully. They shall stand before the Lord. That's where Jesus is borrowing this from. Saying, um, and he's talking to Israel. Eh? Israel's one desire was, we want to go to the mountain of God. Because they remember how Moses went up Mount Sinai. And since then, Israel's been longing. We want to go see God. We want to go see God. And that's why Jesus comes and says, you want to see God? Well, let me tell you how to see God. You don't have to go to any mountain. Blessed are the pure. That's where he brings this um, beatitude out of. And he says, anybody with clean hands, clean heart, and a tongue that does not swear deceitfully. Again, it goes back to clean hands, actions, clean heart, motives and intents, and a mouth that does not swear deceitfully, words. Three areas where purity is required. Three areas where purity is required. So here are a few things that we can do, which I think are practical and doable, to move towards greater purity to move towards greater purity first one guys is self control self control it is and it is not because the grace of god has to be received the receiving is left to you paul actually goes on to say it is possible to receive the grace of god in vain Paul also says it is possible to oppose the grace of God, as many do. So it is all the grace of God, but as in, I can give you a million dollars, but you can oppose it, or you can waste it, squander it, receive it in vain. So that's why I said it's a shared responsibility. With God doing all the work, but I got to come alongside. It's like those barbecues we have at Acts 29. Someone else does all the work. And then I come and pray for the food. So self-control, that's the first one. Self-control, this is actually 
a fruit of the Spirit. And what do we really mean when we say a fruit of the Spirit? All we mean is it's a character of Jesus Christ brought to me by His Spirit. That's what we mean when we say fruit of the Spirit. Because sometimes fruit of the Spirit seems quite distant. Self-control is actually a character of Jesus Christ. I mean, boy, did he exert self-control. Even on the cross, they taunted him saying, hey, are you really God? Call a few legions of angels. And if I was on the cross and someone taunted me that way, legions, I'd send thousands of legions. But then you would all remain unsaved. So self-control was something that God was is a characteristic of Jesus. Self-control is a characteristic of Jesus. And let me let me define self-control. It's the mastery of self. It's the mastery of self so that you reflect the character of God. It's the mastery of self so that you reflect the character of God. It's the mastery of self so that you reflect the nature of God or the character of God. That's what self-control is. Guys, whenever we think of self-control, we always think of restraint. As in, we've got to restrain ourselves from things. From God's perspective, self-control is a disciplining towards things of God. Self-control is a disciplining towards things of God, not a restraint from things. Very rarely does the Bible talk about abstinence. Abstinence does not carry much value in Christianity. Abstinence may apply to all other religions. Penance, abstinence, all that stuff applies to other religions. But when it comes to Christianity, very rarely do you hear God saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, abstain from this, abstain. No. So even self-control we must remove the negative connotation from it of, oh, I've got to restrain myself from. No, it's not a restraining myself from. It's disciplining myself towards. So an athlete who's training for, say, the 100 meters, does not restrain himself from. He disciplines himself towards. Very different way of approaching things, eh? It's not a holding back. It's working towards a goal. It's working towards a goal. And what is that goal? At the end of the day, it can't be a project, it can't be a mission trip, it can't be anything like that. The goal is, I want to be everything I need to be for Jesus. That is my goal. It's like some husbands who are deeply in love with their wives, who say, I want to be everything she wants me to be, and so I will do whatever it takes to change in this area, so that I might be a more compatible spouse. Anything it takes. I've had guys in this church who come and said to me, Jacob, anything it takes I'll do, so that it works out with her. Anything it takes. Every time I hear that, no, it thrills my heart. When a husband says, anything it takes. Thrills my heart. Because at the end of the day, the first thing and the last thing we can offer is our words. In between, action happens. But you start with words. And so that's how we work self-control. And guys, let's put it this way. If any development without personal governing of self 
is impossible. If I do not govern myself personally, mediocrity is guaranteed. If I do not govern myself personally, mediocrity is guaranteed. If there is no personal government, as in, if I don't govern uh, my actions, my thoughts, my ways, if I don't govern them, if I don't rule over them, then mediocrity is guaranteed. Because there is no greatness apart from self-control. 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 Very rarely do we talk about this because it's one of the hardest things to work on, we think. But that's because we are always thinking of restraint instead of disciplining towards. Anything that I really want to achieve in life, I'm not talking about godly things, I'm talking about mundane things. Anything I want to achieve in life, I find that I'm willing to work towards it even if it costs me a little bit of trouble. Anything. Small things. I'll work towards it. So, we have this as a fruit in us. Now that we have it, it must be developed. It's like, let's assume Tate is an amazing hockey player. He just has this amazing shot. How old is he? Five. At five, every time he hits a puck, like it's like hitting a golf ball. And he's got this amazing shot. And you know he has the ability, but now it has to be trained. It doesn't matter how much ability you have. If it's not trained, it stays a wonderful ability. Nothing else. So we have this. It is in me. It is a character of Jesus Christ. It's actually resident in me by His Spirit. I actually have it. Now I will be given opportunities to train in it. You cannot train without being given opportunities. It is possible. It is possible. Any questions before we go on? Any questions? Is this doable? Self-control is doable. Surely. You'll have opportunities today, tomorrow to exert self-control. A man who does not have control over his spirit is like a city without walls. Proverbs 25, 28 or 28, 25. And therefore, a city without walls can be entered into as and when required and can be exited as and when required. You can ravage a city without walls. Essential to build, not build, to cultivate what we already have. Which leads us then to a second point which we can immediately continue into, which is learned habits. Learned habits. From self-control, we go to learned habits. Remember where, why we are doing this, guys. Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. Huge advantage in increasing in 2016 our level of purity. Perhaps we've achieved uh, remarkable results, guys. There are days in my life where the, the purity of my life is pretty good, man. Like even I'm impressed at times. But that's not every day, some days. But what if it went up by another 10? What will it be like, man? 
So the next one is learned habits. Um, Ephesians 4.20, if you look at it in the message version, Ephesians 4.20, Paul actually is saying to the guys in Ephesus, you learned Christ. I love that, the way it's worded. You learned Christ. As in, hey guys, you've learned Christ's ways. So there's learned habits, learned habits. Where you, you, over years you've learned, if I do this this way, things will work out. I mean, one of the things that happened at Bahrain is I met this guy who's now a leader in that church there. His name is Legend. And um, he, he put a simple principle into practice for a year, since last year. And a simple principle was, put first things first. So he started practicing that. Every morning for a year, he put God first. It's just, in a good sense, wrecked his life. As in, it's completely turned things around. He said, Jacob, there were a couple of weeks when I would not, and then I would go back. Where he's entered into a place of consistency, where the first thing he does is put God first. It's changed his marriage. It's changed his way of... uh, That's why he's a leader today in the church. The pastor there was saying, Jacob, no one has grown as rapidly as this guy has. And he did just one simple thing. Put God first. Put first things first. He, I think, is the only guy who's practiced what we taught last year in this church as much as he has done. Nobody, including me, has practiced it like him. At least the results don't bear it out. Perhaps there are people who are practicing it, but the results haven't borne it out. Put first things first. So he's put God first in his finances. Put God first in his marriage. Put God first in his day. (laughs) What results, man? I'm thinking to myself, really, Father? This sermon could actually bring this kind of results? You should have told me before I preached it. So, learned habits. These are learned habits. I've been trying so hard to do that simple thing of putting God first. So hard. It's not easy, man. Some days you just want to sleep in. Especially after you watch three hours of Milo Saranich getting beaten. <laughs> oh, but I was thrilled that Serena lost. I shouldn't be that thrilled. But moving on. Um, yeah, guys, so learned habits. Ask yourself this question. What learned habits do you have in your life right now? What learned Christian habits do you have in your life right now? I was traveling with Eddie uh, for three or four days, just he and I. He took me on this uh, road trip. uh, And (laughs) he gets up every morning, man, (laughs) before I get up. Uh, He'd be sitting there with his Bible open, reading it. doesn't matter whether it's in India, whether it's in South Africa, wherever it is. And you think to yourself, these old guys who seem so stuck up seem to be doing so well because they have cultivated these habits, man. doesn't matter where he is, he does that. Learned habits. 1 Peter 1.22 1 Peter 1.22 Beautiful verse. Really cool verse. It says in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Since you have purified your souls through obeying the truth 
by obeying the truth through the Spirit. So one of the ways we step into purity is by starting with the simple premise of I'll obey the first few things that I know. Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit. So where do you begin with this whole purity thing? Tomorrow by getting up and doing the simple things you already know. Remember guys, mediocrity is guaranteed. <laughs> if you can't govern yourself personally, it's guaranteed. Mediocrity is uh, neither high nor low, lukewarm, average. Yeah, crazy, eh? We think mediocrity is complacent, it's like passionless. No, mediocrity has a violence in it because it destroys life. Proverbs 132, the complacency or the mediocrity of fools will kill them. Yeah, Proverbs 132 says, the complacency or mediocrity of fools will kill them. It, it, there's a certain violence in mediocrity. Proverbs 1 verse 32. There's a violence in mediocrity. Fight it guys, especially you young guys. eh? You know the older people sitting at Acts 29 probably have more discipline than, may I say, we younger guys. Because these things were insisted on when they were growing up. Feels so good to say they. Because they had more years of learning behind them. I don't think so, Gisela. It was just a different way of growing up. Yeah. yeah. I don't think so. Because I've met many who are your age who have zero discipline and are totally mediocre. And churches are full of them. Oh, absolutely, Gisela. I can show you. In any church you take me, I'll show you. So it really is based on our discipline. Guys, learn habits. Say, cultivate them. Cultivate them. I pray God that I begin to cultivate this. You know, guys, here's the thing. Eh? If I cultivate them, I benefit. But if I cultivate them, anyone I touch benefits. Which means Acts 29 benefits. Anywhere I go, they benefit. Everything changes when you benefit. Everybody around you gets touched. Up your game, man. So obedience to the truth through the Spirit purifies my character. Why? Because the moment I start obeying truth on a regular basis, I'm already creating a habit, guys. The moment I obey truth on a regular basis, I'm already cultivating a habit. I'm already cultivating a habit. The moment you start making obeying the truth a prerogative in any area in your life, it already starts a habit. That aside, um, seek environments that induce hunger. Seek environments that induce hunger. May I suggest to you, and suggest it very humbly, without us taking any credit for it, but the sovereign work of God. May I suggest to you that one of the reasons Betty could stand here and say what she said was because she sought an environment that was conducive to hunger. And a year ago, perhaps she couldn't have said the same thing. Thank you. Find environments where uh, hunger can be cultivated. And, and by the same token then, avoid things that hinder appetite. 
Avoid things that hinder appetite. Avoid things that hinder appetite. Appetite for what? Appetite for purity in every area. Avoid things that hinder appetite. Don't nibble at the world. Don't sleep the feeding. Don't feed the sleeping bear. (laughs) Avoid nibbling at the world. Don't feed the sleeping bear. I, I remember reading this quote out to you. I don't know who wrote it. But the person was saying that we keep nibbling at the world and because we nibble at the world, we are like trees that are slowly rotting from inside. But on the outside, everything still looks pretty good and strong. And so we are not um, conscious that when a storm comes, the tree of a life just snaps in two. And the reason it snaps in two is for years we've been nibbling away and there's a rottenness inside that was not exposed. And then along comes a fierce wind and it snaps the Three in two. And you wonder why. And it's happening to thousands of Christians across the world and some really well-known Christians. Didn't happen overnight, guys. Hollowed out from inside. But praise God, we don't have to allow this, right? Guys, there's nobody here who's reached any place of stunning purity in God. We are progressively working towards Him. None of you are glowing with brilliance. Trust me, like Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. So as long as that isn't happening, know that you haven't arrived. The next one. This one we've talked about a million times, so I'll quickly go over it. Fidelity. 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 Fidelity is basically love-based allegiance. Fidelity is love-based allegiance. It's not just an allegiance that is plain. It is love-based allegiance. Love-based allegiance. Fidelity is love-based allegiance. Does anyone know where the erasers are? I didn't take them with me to India. The... Yeah, we'll have to talk to the person in charge of the Sunday school. (laughs) Or the person who keeps taking this away for purposes other than what it's meant for. Love-based allegiance. Guys, allegiance is the starting point of any relationship. Allegiance is the starting point of any relationship. Because the moment you swear allegiance or give your allegiance to something, you will confront other allegiances. And you will forge commitment. The moment you, the moment you say, I have an allegiance towards Gisela, then it re- means that now I might have to confront my allegiance to Chris and to... Uh, Matt. So allegiance is a starting point of any relationship. And the thing with um, fidelity is 
love propels what allegiance prioritizes. Love propels or love fuels or propels what allegiance prioritizes. And the Bible is constantly going over this again and again and again. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible keeps coming back to this one thing. Guys, so why is this important? Because when it comes to purity, you will fall. It's not a negative confession, but unfortunately, given the track record I've seen of my past, and given the track record I've seen of people who've gone before me, who were better than me in the future, you will fall. There will be times when you'll really blow it. But the first thing you do is return to your primary allegiance, as in return to your first love, return to uh, allegiance. That's to come back again and say, slain lamb of God. I know I've blown it by, but my allegiance is to you. I know that my undoing of what I've constructed with your help for so long is not the end of me. I start again. My allegiance is to you. This sin does not define me. I have done something evil. I may have done something wicked. I may have done something unrighteous. But despite that, that is not who I am. For you have seen how I've walked before you. You have seen how I've walked before you. Today, someone sent me a, a little um, text message thingy from First Thessalonians which said that I remember uh, your faith and your labor of love. And I was, as I was looking at it, I was thinking to myself, brilliant father, even though this is Paul saying it to somebody, I take it as you saying it to me. And suddenly it made me feel really good, eh? Because it doesn't matter how messed up I can get, God remembers my faith and my labor of love. I thought to myself, great, so that's how you think of me. It's so easy to return to your allegiance when you know how well God thinks of you. Keep doing that, guys. Keep returning. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Look at it. You'll see these scriptures throughout the Bible. It keeps talking about that. Hosea 6, 6. Hosea 6, 6. Hey, Derek, once you find Hosea 6.6, can you get me um, a, a cup of Hosea coffee? It's about the harlot, right? Pardon? It's about the harlot, marriage with harlot. Uh, Hosea 6.6, probably not. No? no, I think that was Hosea 2. 6.6 may be something else. Hosea 6.6. It says there, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Let's start at verse 4. Eh? What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. But then he returns to the simple thing. But look at what I really desire. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It comes back to this love-fueled or love-based allegiance. That's what God is continuously looking for. And it starts off, Hosea 6 starts off with the simple thing. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he may bind us up. Remember, Anytime the Old Testament talks like that, you're not to assume that God 
tears us up so that he can heal us. I want to be healer, God. Hmm, let's look at look for someone to tear up. No, that's not how he works. The Old Testament always would write that way because they could not understand God as father. Nowhere in the Old Testament is God called father. They didn't even know that it is characteristic. So never take an Old Testament statement like that to think, God rips us up so he can heal us. God destroys us so he can build us up. That's not a good God. That's a pretty nasty God. So, go to... Yep, absolutely. Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. Comes back to this whole thing of allegiance. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Allegiance. Allegiance to Christ confronts other allegiances. So whenever I mess up or I move away from purity my first thing is father I know I didn't do well but my allegiance is to you it has been to you for the last 28 years if anything it's increasing and that makes me more shamefaced at what I did but here I come to renew my allegiance to you and my allegiance to you now confronts every other association or allegiance I've made and I come back to you keep coming back return 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 and don't take time, eh? Return immediately. One of the tricks the devil introduces is that when, he, when we do something wrong, he says, take time to fix it and then go back to God. And then you wait for another day and it's still not fixed. And then you wait another day and it's still not fixed. And the devil is just rubbing his hands in glee because you're falling for the same trick again and again. He uses sin to keep you away from God. As in saying, show God that you really mean you're repentant. That's, that's, that's a trick, guys. That's a trick. Show God that you're really repentant and then you can begin to start again. It's a trick. It's never true. God never says that. Show me you're repentant. He says repent and then show the works of repentance. He doesn't say show me your repentance and repent. He says repent and then show me the works of repentance. Revelations 2.25 Revelation, sorry, I'm, I'm speaking too fast. Revelation 2.25 Allegiances again. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Only hold fast what you have until I come. I hold fast to what you've already achieved. Hold fast to what you've already achieved. Fidelity. Fidelity is like a husband and wife walking together with great fidelity to each other. And any time they mess up, they keep returning to, but I have only one, and that is you. I have only one, and that is you. And you start again, you start again, you start again. And we're not talking about infidelity. Nobody in this room, actually, if you have given your life to Christ and have begun walking a Christian life, nobody in this room will turn their backs on Christ. I, I, I would go so far as to say, guys, that you would rather die than give up Christ. And you think to yourself, really, if I was persecuted, I would stand up for Christ? You would be surprised at how you would. You would be surprised at how you would not give up Christ. 
I was reading an article in the McLean's last issue, and it talks about Christians in North Korea. I was talking about how this particular pastor called Folly, Nick Folly or something like that, he says that he has no desire to get Christians out of North Korea. Because he says if we took all the Christians out of North Korea, there wouldn't be any Christians left in North Korea, which would be pointless. So he helps them continue there. And he says they are beginning to develop a faith that is so strong that they know to become a Christian is to become a martyr. Open Door says that 50 to 70,000 Christians are in camps and prisons in North Korea. 50 to 70,000. I trust guys, not because of your character or my character. I really believe that if it came, shove came to push, you and I, or push came to shove, yeah, push came to shove, you and I would not turn our back on Christ. It's too late for that. It's too late for that. And God would give us the courage to do that. Let's move on and kind of begin to conclude. Another thing that really helps, guys, is beholding him. Beholding him. Beholding him. Second Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. One of the ways we walk in purity is by finding ways to behold God in our daily lives. Finding ways to behold God in our daily lives. And how do we do that? One of the ways is what Gisela earlier mentioned. We behold God by beholding his word. Another way, we behold God by beholding him in worship. Another way, Psalm 16 verse 8. I continuously or constantly or steadfastly hold God before me. That's what it says. Beholding God is this thing that, um, what's her name was talking about, Betty, where God has become evident and now if he's absent, that would be the strange thing because I would know he was absent. Guys, please understand that your children, and I really feel bad for you parents who have children now, eh? like the Tate, Roxanne, Maximo age group. Because you have to teach your children right now to reflect or try to see God face to face. Because their absorption with the world is beyond saturation levels to the point where it's getting demonic. Everywhere around them, they're surrounded by images, thoughts, talks, decision making, um, hearing things, seeing things. That It's beyond saturation level. And it all borders on the demonic if it is not actually demonic. And if you don't teach your kids now to behold God's face by in this, in this messed up world that they live in, if they do not learn how to find God's face, then, then it'd be a shame because after all that they have learned, they won't be able to put it into practice. So, so don't feel um, like you're being a restrictive parent when you ask them to step away from certain television series or certain video games. Foolish would you be? I mean, my dad would always tell me this story. It sticks with me. It's a terrible story, but it sticks with me. He'd say, and he'd always say this after he'd punish me. He'd talk about how, it's a really gory story. He'd talk about how this kid um, would keep doing wrong and his dad wouldn't... Um, 
discipline him. And in the end, he goes to jail. And uh, so when he's going to jail, uh, the kid tells his dad to come close to him. And when he comes close to him, he bites his nose, he bites his nose off or bites his ear off. The whole point being, I wish you had corrected me when I was young. Now you think I'm going to jail and you're ashamed, I'll bite your nose off because that'll even bring more shame to you kind of thing. The whole idea was, why didn't you correct me? And he'd always do that after he gave me a good spanking or good pun, and I'd think, really, I have to hear the story again? <laughs> but, but the point of the story was that, listen, I must correct you when you're young. Guys, you've got no idea. There is, yeah, you've got to help your kids see God face to face. And you have to do that too, eh? Behold him. Because in beholding him, you will be transformed. And there are two things that you'll certainly behold him in. One is the word. One is the word. You, the word is a mirror. It's a mirror. The Bible says so. You behold him in the word, especially in the gospels. You begin to see an accurate picture of him. Don't take your kids to the Old Testament. Don't take them to Jonah and David and Goliath. Those are nice stories. Take them to Jesus first. Let them see the face of God in Jesus. And then take them to David. And then help them to behold God in worship. Help them to behold God in worship. You need to behold God in worship. Guys, at the end of the day, whatever you devote yourself to, let, let me put it this way, people resemble what they devote themselves to. People resemble what they devote themselves to, either for ruin or for restoration. This is why God would turn to Israel and the pagan nations and say, if you follow idols, you shall become like your idols. God, God would say that. So idols are deaf and dumb, and God would say, therefore you will become deaf and dumb. Whatever you devote yourself to is what you will resemble. Therefore, what do you devote yourself to? And what do your kids devote themselves to? Beholding his character through the word, through worship and through senses. Um, you know, I had this favorite pastime when I was in Bahrain. That's where I started my life as a Christian. I'd go hang out. Really, I would deliberately go hang out with three or four grown-ups who seemed to know a lot about Jesus Christ. Whenever they would come into town, I'd ask the guy who was hosting them if I could help uh, carry the bags or bring them from the airport. And I would sit quietly in the back of the car. Not say a word, eh? Me not saying a word. I'd not say a word. I'd just sit there and listen as these three or four men would talk about God. And it fascinated me. And I think to myself, man, I wish I knew the stuff that they knew. Man, I wish I knew the stuff that they knew. You behold God through the word, you behold God through worship. You also behold God through your senses by surrounding yourself or putting yourself in environments where God's character is constantly being brought up. And in the process, you are changed. You are transformed from glory to glory. This is the scripture. By the same token then, whatever you behold that is not God will also transform you, not from strength to strength, glory to glory, but from shame to shame and weakness to weakness. One last point and then we are done. If all this fails, if we blow it, lose self-control, seems like the right word to use, but I won't. 
mess up um, uh, fidelity, where love has suddenly vanished and you don't feel connected to God. Um, if you start beholding other things that are taking you from weakness to weakness and shame to shame, if all these things go wrong, there's still Hebrews 4.15. There is still Hebrews 4.15, which says that we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weaknesses and testing. I can't believe this. I can't believe the fact that Jesus has been tested in every area that I'm being tested in. That he's experienced every temptation, every testing that I've been through. There's nothing that I'm going through that he hasn't experienced except sin. As in he didn't sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a priest, as in we don't have a Jesus, who is out of touch with, our, with Jacob's reality. He's been through the weaknesses and testings experienced by Jacob. By all actually. But let's just think about Jacob. All but sin. And then it goes on to say, let us then approach the throne of grace. With what? With confidence. Why? So that first I may receive mercy. And then I may receive grace in my time of need. When all else fails, there's still a fail safe. Hebrews 4.15 this is how we keep sustaining, maintaining, and increasing in purity. Simple methods, guys. Breathe. I mean, I remember once asking God when I really messed up, telling uh, God, Father, just like you did with the bones in the valley, could you breathe pure, holy life into me so that these wretched bones may live again? Because I know there is mercy. There is always mercy and there is always grace to revive me. So would you breathe your holy, pure life into me again that these wretched bones may live? Wretched is rarely a word I associate with myself, but those times I easily do. And at the end of the day, guys, when you begin to live like this, Psalm 24 verse 3 to 6 kicks in. And Psalm 24 verse 3 to 6 says this, Lift up you ancient doors, lift up your gates, for the King of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty in battle. Guys, you know who opens ancient doors? By the way, what are ancient doors? Ancient doors are hidden doors or concealed doors. Ancient doors. Guys, these doors actually exist. Otherwise, God wouldn't talk about them. He says in Psalm 24 verse 3 to 6, Lift up your gates and be opened you everlasting doors. Or in some versions, ancient doors. Ancient doors are hidden doors or concealed doors that have been since everlasting. As in before time began, these doors exist. What do you mean these doors exist? Uh, Peter opened a door like this. When? When Jesus said to him, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you shall open shall stay open. Whatever you shall shut shall stay shut. Peter stands up after Acts uh, after the Holy Spirit comes and he opens the doors to the kingdom and the first day 3,000 get saved. Daniel opened doors like this. For years, Israel was in exile and Daniel says, at such and such a time, 70 times 7, in 490 years you'll walk out of here free. And yet he, had, he st- kept some things locked. Paul opened doors. 
Paul opened doors in Corinth, Paul opened Ephesus. Paul goes, shuts some doors and opens doors. So much so that the silversmiths in Ephesus got together and they said, man, this Paul, he's come in and created havoc and our goddess Diana or Artemis of Ephesus is doing really badly because Paul has come in. He opened doors and when he opened doors to one kingdom, the other kingdom started shutting down. But here's the thing. Who gets to open doors to let the king of glory come in? They that can ascend the hill with clean hearts, clean hands, and lips that don't swear deceitfully. One of the reasons we are called to be pure is so that we can see him and so that he can enter because he allows us to open doors. The pure can open ancient doors. That's one other reason why I desperately want to increase my level of purity, not let it stay where it is. What God does then is say, here are the keys, son. You've begun to match or resonate with my heart in terms of purity. I will now allow you to open doors. Ancient doors, everlasting doors will be open. Actually, uh, authority to speak salvation and forgiveness to repenting people. I just explained it yesterday when we went to the bank to do something and I told everybody about Jesus. Yeah, I'm glad she agreed to. Guys, um, I promise you this on the authority of the Word of God that every time there's an upgrade in your purity, there's an increase in your authority, there's an increase in responsibility given to you, there is greater dominion in the spirit realm. And you begin to open things for other people that you couldn't open till you stepped into this new level. It's like a new level in a video game. You suddenly open bananas and uh, gun batteries and bullets and all this stuff. New, you know that monkey that grabs the bananas once it gets to a new level and suddenly it gets more power? It's literally like that. You begin to operate like that. Go to Second Samuel 23.7 and you'll see David talking about it. This is David just before he dies. Second Samuel 23, Second Samuel 23, um, verse 7. Verse 6, if in some of your Bibles it says, for worthless men. The actual word is Belial. Belial is another word for the devil. Like in Second uh, Corinthians, Paul says, what, com- what, what is common between the table of the Lord and the table of Belial? So it's talking about, in some versions it says Belial. So here's what it says. But Belial or worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a, sphere, uh, of a spear, and they are and they are utterly consumed with fire. Now go to Second Corinthians six. Second Corinthians six. So what does shaft of a spear and all that mean? How does it translate in the New Testament? Second Corinthians six verse seven. 
shaft and the spear. As in, if you want to deal with things that are evil, if you want to restore to people the inheritance that has been robbed from them. Guys, there is no way that Acts 29 will ever be able to accomplish what it is supposed to accomplish in Nandigama, as in restoring the desolate heritages of a group of people that have been labeled untouchable, who've been oppressed for 4,000 years. There is no way we can break that oppression if Acts 29 does not commit to a greater level of purity. Because every time you move to a greater level of purity, you get to undo things much easily. You get to deal with worthless things. You get to deal with Belial. You get to deal with them with spear and shaft. And what does spear and shaft represent in the New Testament? It's in Second Corinthians 6-7 where it says, By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Goes back to purity. The greater your purity, the greater the devils you can handle. The greater the purity, the greater the devils you can handle. Hey, if you're a part of this church, you really don't have a choice. If you're a part of this church, you are going to have to be involved in this. And you can say, I'll stay on the sidelines. Unfortunately, if you stay on the sidelines, you'll still get the benefits and you'll still be involved in battle. Doesn't matter. Stay on the sidelines and you'll still get the benefits. So let's say we win a million dollars, we all get a million dollars. And let's say the enemy tries to harm us. All of us get harmed if all of us don't jump into this. That's the way it works. Any questions? I'm sorry, I forgot to ask if any questions. I was quite excited about this teaching. Blessed are the pure for they shall see God. They shall see God. That's what we are after. Any questions before we finish? I'm done, but any questions? Any questions, guys? So I pray God that you and I begin to Decide, it's still early in the year, it's Jan 31st, we've got 11 months to practice this. Begin to say, Father, I've lived a relatively pure life. I've been doing pretty good. But I want to upgrade it. I want to move into a place that is far greater than this. And Father, I'm not talking about sexual purity at all. I'm talking about purity in every area. I want purity in every area and I want to up my game. Even those things we don't see as gossiping. Yeah. I want to up my game. I want to walk pure. Blessed are the pure for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure for they shall see God. And then these pure shall be the ones who shall open ancient doors. Who shall open ancient doors. Everlasting doors. And God is continuously opening them. Eh? I just love the fact that there are doors left for Acts 29 to open. I mean, I don't care if Acts 29 doesn't exist 20 years from now. But there will be a Maya and an Isaiah and a Tate and a Finn and an Airy and a, uh, and a, and a um, Roxana and a Max and a Lance that will exist. That's how generations continue. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a... I mean, haven't you seen churches that have existed for 100 years? What good is that? When I say we build generationally, I don't mean that we should exist for 100 years. Let them call it whatever they want. But she should have the deposit to continue with it. I'm so excited about... I'm not faking excitement. eh? Obviously, I'm not jumping with joy or anything. But I'm so excited about the ancient doors, as in doors that existed before time existed, that are still left for Acts 29 to open. Everlasting doors. And the moment we open them... Two things will happen. Ahab will fall 
and the land will have rain. Ahab will fall, and the land will have rain. Ahab will, be, Ahab will fall, Jezebel will be deposed, Jehu's will be erased, Elisha's will come forth, and the land will have rain. This is what happens when you open ancient doors. One day, if possible, just come and visit with Jeevan and me, Nandigama. You'll see what's happening and you'll be stunned. What a privilege to break a 4,000 year oppression. What a privilege. When I first went there, I remember coming back and saying to Jeevan, if 10 or 20 make it, that'll be huge. This time when I went, if 80 don't make it, I'll be disappointed. So sometimes come on these trips not to do anything, 